Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joining my colleague, Rich Fay, this rather sunny Friday lunchtime. Rich, how are you? I'm very good, thank you very much, George. Yeah, it's been a, a maybe a weird week for us, hasn't it? It's, we're still in that sort of lull, is it? This season, is it past season? Where are we? We seem to be in a bit of a limbo, but things are starting to take a bit of pace, I suppose, and hopefully things start picking up a bit more now as we get closer to the transfer window and US tour. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, there we are in that limbo period of where do you class it? Personally, I still think it's this season. I still think with one one yeah. game left of this season, the Champions League final to come, I still think we're in 22-23. But obviously, it is nearly a week since United signed off for their campaign, losing 2-1 to Manchester City in the FA Cup final last Saturday. Uh, we, of course, reviewed that Wembley defeat in our latest podcast earlier this week. So we're going to have a look at matters off the field this lunchtime. And there is, of course, only one place to start in that sense. And that is with the takeover situation, which is still rumbling on. Rich, it was confirmed on on Wednesday that Sheikh Jassim had lodged a fifth and final bid to buy United. Reports of it being a basically a take-it-or-leave-it offer. He's reportedly had enough. He's become frustrated and you can't really blame him with the way this is playing out, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, was the World Cup was only three days old when the Glazers officially opened the door for fresh investment or put the club up for sale. One way or another, however it happens, this needs resolving sooner rather than later, doesn't it? Absolutely. And what is that, nearly, I think it's almost seven months exactly now? Nearly since, seven months, yeah. Since we got those whispers and those rumours and it then became official. And yeah, we're still in that same limbo and... I mean, I almost am reluctant to say it's, it is the final deadline for Sheikh Jassim's bid because it's his final deadline for now. And then maybe there might be another one. You just don't know. There's been so many final deadlines. There's been so many ultimatums in this whole process and it keeps getting knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. And that tells you everything about the state of United, really, at this moment. They're so sort of bad at making decisions that they can't even make the decision to sell themselves. And I suppose that... The most annoying thing for United fans, as we touched upon on the last podcast, so sorry if it's a bit repetitive, is the lack of clarity. I think that even though it would be a hollow PR exercise, just put a statement out there. Say this is where we're up to, this is why it's been delayed. Give a little bit of a time frame. Say we're still looking at getting alternative investment in the club. We're still open to selling the club. Just have some communication with the fans and, and give some sort of enlightenment because what will annoy United fans the most and it's been continuous throughout the Glazers' reign of the club, is the fact that there hasn't been that communication. And of course, what was it, a year ago, two years ago, we got that statement following the failed Super League saying that the, the owners wanted to have greater sort of interaction with the fans. They wanted to have those communication lines. They had the fan advisory board made. They tried to open up these communication dialogues. But it's just all petered out to the same old again. And... I guess a leopard never changes its spots and, and that's what's happened with United in this circumstance. In terms of the takeover, like I said, the rhetoric coming from Sheikh Jassim earlier in the week was that he's losing patience, that it will be, a, you know, it's Friday, take it or leave it really. This is his final bid. It will still be on the table beyond Friday. If the Glazers then want to accept it, they can, but he sort of had enough of the process. But again, there's still contradicting whispers that if they then came back and asked for a little more or gave him some sort of encouragement that he could still be the owner, they probably would engage with talks again. So you can see why he's come out with this uh, like this sort of statement of his own trying to say that, no, it's his, his own ultimatum. But the fact is the Glazers are still in control, not just in control of the club, but of the entire sales process. And Shea 
Ratcliffe, you see, and Jim Ratcliffe both still desperately want to buy Manchester United and they'll both do all they can to do so. And they'll engage with talks, they'll engage with the process as much as they can. It is just so frustrating and repetitive and being drawn out much longer than it needs to be. But I wouldn't say that anything is immediately imminent on a takeover. Obviously, things can change very quickly. But as of now, it still seems to be the exact same situation we've been in for basically the full seven months anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as soon as the news came to light about Sheikh Jassim's bid the other day, there was, you know, immediate cries on social media as you'd expect from the fans urging the Glazers to basically pack your bags and get lost. So it is going to just keep rumbling on. And I think, like you said there, they, the fans, at the very least, they deserve some clarity on what's happening. They deserve, you know, a statement of some sort. You were in the mix zone at Wembley last Saturday when Avram Glazer walked through. You know, he was asked a couple of questions. He completely blanked both of them and carried on walking. And it wouldn't have done any harm just for him to take 30 seconds to step to the side and say a few words and just to address the situation. But obviously, they are remaining silent on this. And obviously, there is a big split among the fan base who they want to take control of the club moving forward, even though they're all united in wanting the Glazers gone. Sir Jim Ratcliffe remains the favourite to, to take over. But of course, that is with a majority stake rather than a full sale. But there seems to be a, you know, obviously the fact that that will see the Glazers still have some involvement. It's it's putting the fans off. Jim Ratcliffe taking control, isn't it? I think there's a, a certain demographic online anyway, more particularly, who just want Qatar and only Qatar anyway. Then there's another demographic who may be a bit concerned about any takeover that includes the Glazers staying on whatsoever. I can see that. I can see that. I can see those reservations against Ratcliffe. The fact that he, he would sort of, sort of, you know, cozy up to the Glazers for a bit to give them what they want and let them stay along. But the truth of the matter is, 51% or 100%, it's still a controlling stake. It'll still be Sir Jim Ratcliffe's club. You know, he owns the majority of the club if it if it goes through. So, to to that regard, I think that you can't worry about it too much. And the understanding is that you know the Glazers would be kept on for a few years and then they'd be con- contractually obliged to to give up all control of the club and maybe five, six years down the line, it would be just Sergio Ratcliffe who, who runs Manchester United. So, I, I, you know, you, you can see why fans are, are thinking that they'd rather have Qatar in those instances because they want to end all association with the Glazers and that is fully, fully understandable. But I also wouldn't maybe be so concerned about Sergio Ratcliffe's bid to, you know, the fact of the matter is he would have the control and stake. That is what matters. The, the Glazers would be there in ceremony, but they wouldn't really have much power or any say in what actually happens with, with the club. Yes, they'd still be taking money, dividends probably, and, and still earning from, from Manchester United. But the fact of the matter is it will be Ratcliffe who is then held accountable. It will then be his own new era. And for his own sake, he will want to make sure things are done properly. So, you know, he, he doesn't get off to the wrong foot. And I think it's important, whatever happens, that... Whoever is successful in this takeover bid, they need to come out publicly and have a, a real long, hour long or so sit down, either with club media or with external media, and just lay out their their thought process and their their real sort of their, their plan to put Manchester United back where they want them to be. Because they both came out with really interesting and engaging statements when they signalled their intent publicly to to buy the club. But once that actually goes through, there'll be even more scrutiny. And it's not just a case of your words, it's how you actually execute it. What is the game plan? So I think it's really important as well that whenever the takeover happens, firstly, there has to be unity from the supporters because 
Yes, you might have a preferred bidder, but either bidder is better than the Glazers. I think it has to be seen as that from yeah. from United fans' fans' point of view. And from there on, you then need to really gauge where's this money coming from. What is it going to finance? What is the actual procedure? You might get the money, but then how are you going to spend it? Because this isn't me being anti-Qatar. Well, it might be twisted to be, but you look at like PSG. They have got Qatari backing, but they are not they are not a well-run football club. They are not the blueprint United want to follow. So if Qatar get in, they need to prove that they aren't going to make United into another PSG. They need to show that they're going to be able to invest properly. And it isn't just all hyperbole and strong statements and using key buzzwords to get United fans on side. There needs to be actual plans set out that everyone can buy into and see. And there just needs to be clarity. We've mentioned that clarity on what's happening right now. And then once a, a successful bid is potentially approved, some clarity on how... United are going to move forward and what's actually going to change because even if they get new owners, it's not going to be a magic one solution. Things won't just change overnight. There's going to be a lot of hard work that needs to go on behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. You know, structure and philosophy is such a big part of any football club nowadays. And, you know, the man that's led United's most recent philosophy is, of course, Eric Ten Hag. And he's done an excellent job in the, over the past 12 months since he came into Old Trafford. And as a result of this saga that's seemingly never-ending, he's probably the man that's suffering the most because he, he needs that word clarity. That's what he needs ahead of next season. And, you know, the transfer window opens in, in five days' time as we record this. He, of course, has been able to put some plans in place, what he wants to do, obviously, and we'll, and we'll talk transfers shortly. But in terms of a budget and what he's going to have to work with and who's going to be funding his budget... You know, he's not got that that confirmation yet that he needs desperately. So, potentially, the man that's, you know, started United's resurrection could be the biggest casualty of this whole mess. So, on that sense, if the transfer, if the transfer business is going to be impacted, Eric Ten Hag's going to be the man that's been, going to be in the firing line of the media and the questioning. But it's, none of it's his fault, is it? No, absolutely not. And... There'll be certain things that are Ten Hag's responsibility and he can be blamed for, but he can't be blamed at all with what happens this summer because it's so out of his hands. And United said they wanted to have the, the deal done initially by Easter, was it? And then it was before the summer transfer window opened. And like you said, five days left, probably less by the time you're actually listening to this wherever you are in the world. And it does really implement, uh, sorry, affect and have implications on what United are trying to do in, this, in the transfer window. The, we understand the deal, and we'll get onto it later. The proposed deal for Mason Mount doesn't really matter who's in charge or what happens with funds. That, you know, that's a player United actively want to get. Still, some disagreement on the fee between the two clubs. So that's one they're working on. But it's such a fluid situation with so many little cogs, so much mitigation, and so many variables involved that it's really is difficult. First of all, United don't know in black and white what their budget is. There's an initial budget sort of pre-takeover that, that they'll know what they've got to play with if there is no additional funding made available. That has to be supplemented by player sales. We know that. And then you've got your targets within that. So as things stand, United won't be able to go out there and buy. I mean, initially, Ten Hag wanted a world-class midfielder and a world-class striker this summer. Right now, that's not doable. Even with player sales, that would probably be unlikely. So until you've got clarity on the takeover, you can't really pursue a world-class striker and a world-class midfielder. You might be able to go for one, probably can't go for both. If United then get the takeover, you might be able to. But by that point, United might have already tried to strengthen their team. They might have bought a striker. They might have bought a midfielder. So then it's it, then they might have the budget to go and buy someone else, but they might not actually need to. 
um, other positions on the pitch. We know United are interested in perhaps another centre-back, perhaps a right-back, a goalkeeper. But again, these are variables. Things can change so quickly depending on who's sold, depending on how much money is available from potentially a successful takeover. So it really is hard to plan. United know the priorities to get a striker. We'll get onto that in detail later. But again, the type of striker they want is affected so much by the takeover. We all know Harry Kane is the one they want the most. Ten Hag is obsessed by him. But right now they can't afford to go get him. They can't afford to pay what Tottenham would require to sell him to a domestic rival. You know, they would have to pay way beyond the club record fee to do that. And without the takeover, that simply isn't possible. If we knew the takeover was imminent, in a few weeks they might have that money, then they could delay their plans. They could go in and hold off and then get Kane. But right now they're acting with a proviso that he won't be for sale and they won't be able to afford him. So they have to look at alternative targets. But like we said, if then a takeover was sanctioned in the final weeks of the window, you then have that money. So there's just so much uncertainty right now. And it's really interesting from our point of view, because by definition, almost everyone is... (laughs) could be linked with United this summer because they could be able to afford anyone. They might also have to look at lower targets. So there's a wide spectrum of players United have had to consider, a whole list of targets for each position as well, again, which are variable depending on how the money moves about. And yeah, it sounds confusing what I've said because it is very confusing. There's so much to gauge and, you know, United wanted to get their business done earlier this summer. But I just think until there's clarity on the takeover, they, they can't. Yeah, and this is the thing, isn't it? We've obviously seen Liverpool this week wrap up a deal for Alexis McAllister. Mateo Kovacic, by all accounts, looking set to join Manchester City. You know, the the big movers in the Premier League are already getting their houses in order ahead of the window officially opening next week. And United, even though they've identified targets, and, you know, as you've mentioned there, Rich, have made a little bit of progress with Mason Mount. They're still a long way off getting that deal and, and several others done that they need to. And Eric Ten Hag, among all of this, is the one that's going to be, you know, the one that's made to suffer in a sense, because and the fans, of course, as well. They're the ones that have you know backed Eric Ten Hag all the way and seen what he's done over the last twelve months, and now uh, another really important summer. United are failing to make that progress that they wanted to do early doors, and, and it's such a shame because obviously things on the pitch improved so much this season. But just lastly on this, Rich, before we move on and look into the transfer situation, how long do you think? The, the fans can kind of accept a point where, and this is, you know, it's kind of an impossible question to answer, really. Do they accept that we're either going to get this takeover done now or we're not? There's got to be a line drawn somewhere, surely, for the sake of the club and the sake of Eric Ten Hag to say, right, the Glazers, we're not selling now. We're going to hold off. Let's just try and move on with what we've got. It's just such a difficult balancing act for everyone involved, isn't it? It's yeah, it's really difficult. It's, again, so difficult to put an actual timeline on it. I think United fans and, and the club just need to, to, first of all, explain what is going on. Are they still going to, even if it's not happening right now, are they still looking into a sale later in the year or, or, or whenever? We need that clarity, first of all. We understand they are, you know, that right now the takeover talks are still going on, but they've gone on for so long that there has to be some doubt as to whether it will ever actually happen. I think in terms of a deadline for, for this summer, you know, there's still so long. The, the transfer window closed on the 1st of September, so it'd be foolish to say it's got to be by now or, or, or by this date in particular. I mean, you look at even when Man, Man City got took over, the, 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 the takeover went through on, was it the final day of the transfer window? And they managed to go get Robinho and they, they made that splash in, in the ocean, didn't they? But they at least managed to sort of signal their intent and they were ready to go again the following January. So I think United fans, to be honest, don't care. As long as the Glazers have gone by the end of the year, 
they'll be happy. You know, they'd be, be preferable for them to go as soon as possible. But as as long as that is the the ends, then I think it justifies it whenever that might be. From my own personal point of view, I think it would be handy from the club to have it done before the preseason tour. United will be going to America. There'd be an expectation for the Glazers to attend matches, to attend events there if they're still in charge, because it's right on their home patch. And I think it would just be a shame as well if United's preseason tour was just dictated by endless transfer questions and updates, all the players in the mix zone getting asked about the uncertainty of the future of the club, Ten Hag getting asked about the uncertainty regarding the club as well. And, you know, I think that from United's point of view, it would make a lot of sense to try and have some clarity and ideally have the wheels in motion for a takeover by the time they do go on that preseason tour so that it can be a positive tour, so that it can be all happiness and there's change of foot and there is momentum being built upon. They've got the foundations and this is the clear path they're going on. So for me, I think, yeah, what is that, sort of a month, month and a half take, is yeah, the sort of time that I put on it. So I think that that would be preferable from, from United's point of view. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, after obviously last summer with Ten Hag coming in and the beginning of a new era and everything, United this summer, kind of like a, a normal summer if there is such a thing in football, with, you know, to be able to talk about matters on the pitch rather than and the ongoing takeover situation. But that is the end of part one of this Manchester is Red podcast. Do rejoin us in part two in a couple of moments time when we're going to look at the latest on the transfer front. Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. As I said a moment ago, we are going to look at things on the transfer front now. And as me and Rich said in part one, Mason Mount seems to be the the leading contender potentially to become United's first signing of the summer, certainly with the knowledge that we've got so far. Um, as our colleague Samuel Luckhurst wrote last week, United have agreed personal terms with Mason Mount, but they still remain apart with, a, uh, with Chelsea over a transfer fee. Rich, you mentioned in part one that the top priority of Eric Ten Hag this summer is to bring in a world-class midfielder and a world-class striker. Mason Mount, in his own right, is certainly a quality footballer. He's an established Premier League player, but on paper, he's probably not that world-class midfielder that United were probably looking for, is he? But nevertheless, I think to inject younger legs into that midfield, it would certainly be a step in the right direction. Absolutely, and and when you look at this sort of the world turns world class. I think sort of Frankie de Jong and Jude Bellingham would have fit into that mould. Yeah. Obviously Bellingham now after Real Madrid, Frankie de Jong unlikely to leave Barcelona, you'd say, uh, this summer. Mason Mount is a I think would be a good good addition. I think he he you know he'd be an improvement on what United already have in midfield. And I, I think the importance of it would be for me that he comes in, maybe not to start every single game and, and, and be irreplaceable in the team, but He's an alternative to someone like Ericsson. Ericsson was, you know, running on empty for a large part of last season. Even sort of before his injury, he was just not quite performing at the same level. And that's understandable. United were only ever meant to use Ericsson as a supplementary option to the squad, really. And they became over-reliant on him way too way too quickly and, and were too reluctant to actually sort of use their squad options. So if you see Mount as a sort of a replacement for Ericsson when required and someone who's better suited to the style of play than the likes of Fred and, and McTominay, then I think that that's reasonable. I think that there wouldn't be too much complaints with that, really. And the concern of it is going to be the valuation. We understand that Chelsea aren't really too um, interested in negotiating a, a lower fee for him. They, there's going to have to be some compromise. United are, are below their valuation at this moment in time. 
Uh, Man wants to leave Chelsea, but Maurizio Pochettino, you know, a, a new element there around at Stamford Bridge. He, he might be keen to work with, with Mason Mount. He might even want to have him as an integral player next season. So there's still probably some important talks to be had there, but it does sound like Mount's got his heart set on on a new challenge, on, on leaving Chelsea. And I think United would be would be a good fit for him. I think that he's well suited to to the style of play that Ten Hag wants. His passing accuracy was alarmingly low last season, but I think you can slightly overlook that by the fact that Chelsea were just an absolute mess. They were the finished 12th basket case of a club, really, and, you know, you put him in a different team with different mentality and with a different philosophy, and he can be a very effective player. He's always been divisive. England fans will tell you that. Even Chelsea fans will tell you that, that there's an element maybe of like a, a Jesse Lingard about him in terms of the way that he really does polarise supporters. Um, and similar sort of style of play as well, I'd kind of say. Very combative and energetic and technically brilliant, but he's not always going to be your cup of tea. You could see some fans wouldn't ever take to him maybe and some fans would adore him. I think he maybe would split opinion a bit and I think he'd be a good addition, but he'd be a good addition for a reasonable fee. The understanding is it's going to be sort of north of 60 million, maybe, that Chelsea would ask for for, for Mason Mount. And, you know, he does come in and he, he does a job, but that for me is a, a hell of a price for a player of, of his quality that, like we said, wouldn't necessarily even be in United's best 11 next season. So I think it's it's important that if Ten Hag wants him, he's back to go and get him. If he, de- if he decides that's the player he wants and he sees that as an area of improvement, then, then go for it. But... I do think that United, they always play sort of, they say they pay a premium. They've always got this United tax, we call it. And I do just worry that Mason Mount, particularly as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, the budgets are potentially quite limited to begin with this summer, um, would be not a risk in terms of what he brings, but a risk in terms of the price attached to it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, like you've said there, there's no guarantee he would be a starter every single week. And it is kind of an upgrade on Christian Eriksen, even if not, the top class upgrade that you know, United fans necessarily want. But I think even though I was reading a piece that our colleague Stephen Railston did earlier this week looking at his defensive attributes, which were you know a lot better than probably what most of us would give him credit for, he's still not you know that player that's going to come in and boss the midfield in terms of physicality and defensive mindset. So it kind of leaves a question of, say United do sell Fred this summer, uh, Matomane obviously is kind of the fallback guy, so the midfield three would be Fernandez, Mount, and Casemiro, for for instance. If Casemiro was to pick up an injury or suspension, United then all of a sudden are completely bereft of a defensive-minded midfielder with the same qualities of him. So it begs the question: on top of Mason Mount, do United need to recruit another defensive midfielder? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk of Declan Rice in in the last few days. Obviously, winning the. Uh, conference league with West Ham and then it's come out that said that he's going to be allowed to leave this summer he's another player that's going to demand an astronomical transfer fee this summer but on the flip side we're saying that United might need a defensive midfielder just in case Casemiro gets injured they're not going to be able to sign Declan Rice to play as a backup player there's no doubt about that so do you think as well as Mason Mount United need to be looking for obviously obviously not mega mega money but another defensive midfielder that they can rely on that can do a job in Casemiro's absence in an event of injury or anything like that? Ideally, I think most definitely. I think even last season we saw that Casemiro is starting to show signs of his age. And, you know, there is always a concern when Real Madrid sell a player because they're so savvy and wise and they know when they've got enough out of a player, really, don't they? And they, it's the same with Varane. He's been excellent for United, but 
Varane's missed more games games through injury since he joined the club than Victor Lindelof did six years has in the six years he's been at the club. And you know, there's there's mitigation for that, there's reasoning, but Varane is a player who, like Casemiro, is on the decline. And that's why Real Madrid sold him. And United obviously still saw it as a good bit of business. They're still fantastic players with huge experience who've made a, a huge impact at the club, but they are dwindling and you have to expect less and less of them every season really that's just the nature of it particularly in their positions and I do feel that United next season could again pay the price for their dependency on Casemiro as any team would and you know it's not this isn't just a United problem because any team you take Rodri out of the City team they are completely different you know because he is so so good and so unique in what he brings there and I think from United's point of view the concern isn't that they ha- there's a huge drop off in quality in Casemiro? It's that they still haven't found anyone who can do or offer remotely what what it is he offers. You know, he completely transformed the team. Arguably, was the most influential player last season. The reason their defence got so much better was because Casemiro. The reason their midfield functioned better was Casemiro. The reason they were creating so many more sort of attacks from deep was Casemiro. You know, he, he improved every sort of possible position on the pitch, and I do think that there's a real concern still to be had about United's reliance on him. I just can't see them being able to to buy a player like that, particularly if the takeover, like we said, takes time because you've got the striker as the priority. Then it's another midfielder. Then you've got a goalkeeper as well, potentially another defender. And then you maybe move on to centre defensive mid. So it's probably got fifth or sixth priority this summer, but it still is a really important one. And Declan Rice as well, the fee he would command, particularly after his recent exploits of West Ham, the rival competition in, in trying to get him as well. I just can't see him being attainable right now for Manchester United. No, you wouldn't have thought so with the situation, obviously the budget and all the uncertainty that comes with that. But obviously you've mentioned there that the main focus is a striker. United, everybody with the slightest interest in the club, whether it be journalists, fans, whatever, that they know they need a striker this summer. Harry Kane was earmarked as Eric Ten Hag's top target several months ago now. But United, of course, are working under the assumption that Kane won't be sold by Spurs despite him entering the final year of his contract next month. Um, you know, Rasmus Hojland at Atalanta has been identified as an attainable target. There's still interest in the likes of Colo Moani and Victor Ossiman as well. But what, where do United go with this? Obviously, Harry Kane is the top target. He is the best striker of the crop of, say, five or six that they've identified. But the fact of the matter is that it will cost huge money. It may into the whole of United's budget and leave them with nothing else to play with. And, of course, there might not be any resale value at the end of Kane's contract, depending on how his United career would go. Who, personally, in your opinion, Rich, do you think is the best striker that United... You know, for logistic reasons, who would be the best fit? Well, everything bumped in. Who do you think should be the man that they go for? I think Kane is obviously the best guarantee to goals that they need, but his age is obviously a factor. Hodgland, very young, exciting, but, you know, inexperienced. Victor Osserman, up and coming, probably a good age, but again, pricey. It's a real difficult one that United have got to get right this, isn't it? Yeah, it's like Goldilocks and the Free Bears, isn't it? it Everyone's is. got Who like do you a, pick? They look appetising and then there's yeah. a bit of a concern, isn't there? I mean, yeah. If Kane comes, it's a club record fee and ridiculous amount of money required to, to get Tottenham to sell him. Obviously, Real Madrid now in the hunt for him as well after counting Benzema was sold. So United would have to outspend Real Madrid, offer more. Obviously, there's the Premier League record goal scorer, um, well, record, isn't it, that, that Kane's chasing that could play to an advantage. But primarily, 
Kane's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. The most expensive striker United could probably go for this summer. But he's Premier League guaranteed. He gets goals. His 30 goals last season, or this season as we're calling it, probably more impressive than Haaland's 36 because he did it in that Tottenham team and he really dragged them through this season even though they finished so poorly and were such a basket case of club. He was still incredible. On his day, he's not just the best goal scorer in the Premier League, he's one of the best playmakers as well. We've seen that side to his game. You know, he is incredible. He's also a leader. You know, he's captain. He's captain material. He'd come into United and he'd have that authority as well and that would be priceless for, for what United try to do. The other variable with him is if you do sign Kane for the money spent and the expectation next season I really think you need to be challenging properly for the Premier League Uh, it has to be you have to be finishing very close to to Man City I know they're a behemoth and they're on on another level but there'll be so much more expectation on United and more expectation on on Ten Hag as well that if they ended up getting Kane there's less mitigation for failure next season because it will be such an investment and such a guarantee of goals then like you said you've got Ozzyman brilliant 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 player probably the only other player that I could sign this summer who's more as likely to get goals as Ozzyman uh, sorry as Kane is Ozzyman I'd say because the season he's had at Napoli was incredible the variety of goals he was scoring incredible as well but of course there's the caveat that he's not Premier League proven and I know that sounds ridiculous but there's been many players in the past who've joined the Premier League with fantastic goal scoring records and it just hasn't quite worked out so there'll be a bit more leniency, but it's still going to be close to probably a club record fee for Ozzyman because he's a elite striker right now, and that's what he's done. He's just won the league with Napoli. He's in a very good place with Napoli. You know, very tempting to stay there next season to try and defend the Serie A title and to to even try and win the Champions League. Maybe he wants to play the Premier League one day, but if he was available, would there be more you know competition for him? I mean, the reason United are the only team that can get Kane is because although Daniel Levy doesn't want to sell to a domestic rival, he most certainly doesn't want to sell to Arsenal or Chelsea. Whereas Ozzyman, he'd be attainable for both Chelsea and Arsenal as well. So there'd probably be more increased domestic competition for him. And then you look at someone like Hodgland, who's fascinating and really interesting. He's a player who himself admits that he sees comparisons with Haaland. They're both left-footed, they're both quick, they both sort of had a similar breakthrough. His on a much smaller scale. Be cheaper. He openly says he's a boyhood United fan. Wouldn't be as difficult to convince Hodgland to join United. And like we said, less money, so maybe less expectation. And if you look at the calibre of striker is right now, I think Kane and Ozzyman would come into the, the Premier League and they'd be considered rivals for Erling Haaland. I think if Hodgland came in, he would be of the ilk. And this is, might sound ridiculous, but I think you'd have to compare him with the likes of sort of Callum Wilson, Ollie Watkins... Mm. You know, those sort of second string. You know, not the amazing strike of the Premier League, the great, the good, you know, the the players just below. They all got 15 goals plus this past season. So they're they're still very good strikers, but I think Hodgland would come in and you just couldn't expect him to get 20 goals. That would be the ambition, maybe across all competitions, but I think you'd be looking at him to maybe get 15, 15, 16 goals next season. So in an ideal world, you'd get Hodgland and you'd get someone else. The someone else is a difficulty because, again, it all comes full circle that with the uncertainty of the takeover, the uncertainty of the money and the funds and where it's coming from, you might buy Hodgland with the intention of getting someone else, but then you might not get someone else. And it leaves you next season with Marcus Rashford and Hodgland as your two striking options, and you might have to keep Anthony Marshall there because you can't really afford to get rid of him. 
I know he's been so unreliable and inconsistent, but he's still got a good goal-to-minute ratio in the Premier League this past season. If he was third choice, maybe there'd be less issues about about that injury record because there wouldn't be as much expectation. So there's so many variables. Like I said, if I had, if it was a bottomless pit of money, United could go get who they wanted, they'd get Harry Kane. But it's not as easy as that. And again, for all these little cogs that are turning, I could see someone like Hodgland just because he's so much easier to get, just get him through the door and that's guaranteed. Then that is ticked off as a box and then it leaves you the whole window to potentially try and get someone else. But you've at least got someone in early doors. So I think he is the most likely. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree. And, you know, there's so many caveats in all of this and moving parts because, you know, Marcus Rashford, generally, we do consider him these days as a left winger and will be Eric Ten Hag's first choice option on the left next season. But he can play through the middle if needed to. Ganacho or Jaden Sancho could slot in on the left-hand side. But even if United did, say, recruit someone of Kane or Ossiman's ilk and Martial did leave, United still may want another striker in reserve, say, if one of those two got injured. So it's it's really, really difficult to, to balance this and, and find a way to make it look both sensible and attractive at the same time. But I think I'm with you. I think Kane is, you know, it, it's the best option. And I think for what United want to do to return to the top, he would give them that guarantee of goals. And then I think after him, Ossiman would be the second best bet because obviously you know he's 24 I think he's five years Kane's junior so you know he would have a lot longer in in you know in terms of leading that United line but obviously at the other end of the pitch you mentioned their goalkeeper might be needed a right back might be needed there's a lot of debate regarding the centre-back position with either one of Harry Maguire or Victor Lindelof expected to leave this summer Obviously, Rafael Varane and Lissandro Martinez formed Ten Hag's best centre-back partnership this season. and There's next to no chance of that being broken up next term. Obviously, Varane's injury record means there could be a few opportunities for someone to get a few games somewhere. But as you've done a piece this morning, Rich, as, you know, as we record this on Friday, bringing in another centre-back because of you know the, the strength of Martinez and Varane, it might not be so easy. There's been a lot of links with Kim Min-jae at Napoli, the uh, South Korean centre-half. He's not going to come in from Napoli. I mean, just won the league title to be content with sitting on the bench. No, not at, not at all. And again, that is the the difficulty of all this. I mean, there's been reports this week saying that Harry Maguire is not actually keen on leaving either. You know, he's happy to stay and obviously he's going to try to fight for his place. So who would you get rid of? Uh, you've got Varane and Martinez who are both going to stay. They're still the first choices for United. We saw in the running of the, of the last season that Victor Lindelof has a worth to this United team still. He's still a very good Premier League defender. Obviously, the captain of Sweden as well. In terms of reserve options, Luke Shaw came into centre-back. He was fantastic. You know, I don't think United fans would begrudge him being the backup to Lissandro Martinez next season, which in that case, you've got two left-foot centre-backs there sorted. You've then still got Varane and one of Lindelof and Maguire. So you've technically already got four senior centre-backs, five if you can't shift Maguire this summer. So then if you talk about bringing in another another defender, just where do they get the guaranteed playing time in United's current system? I just I just don't see it whatsoever. And it's it's preferable that United would want another defender, but until someone's sold, I just I just can't see it happening. And again, they would still command hefty fees. I know Kim's got this um, release clause, ruined release clause that is activated next month, which would be quite a, quite a snip, quite a steal for a, for a player of his quality. But it's still quite a big fee for someone who'd be coming in and he'd be expecting to start every week. It means you're then dropping World Cup winner Varane, you know, a player who United fans idolise and adore. Of course, I mentioned his injury record previously, a bit of a concern, but he's still 
good enough not to be binned off. So it's just it's far easier said than done. And yeah, it's it's just more of a more of a want than a need. I think this summer another centre back for United because there's just the priorities have to lie elsewhere. And again, it will be de- determined on who what offers come in for which players. And and again, like you said, all those moving parts. But for me, I think a centre back is wishful thinking at this stage. Yeah, it's certainly not something that's high up on the on the to-do list, that's for sure. And, you know, even if they were to look at a centre-back who's young and up-and-coming and wouldn't command the biggest transfer fee in the world, it's about finding the right person who's going to be content with the game time that they're likely to get. So, you know, there could be a scenario where United just stick with what they've got in terms of the, the recognisable four, and then obviously Luke Shaw can switch across if required to. So there's going to be a lot of moving parts in all this. But just lastly, Rich, on the transfer front, Goalkeeper situation has been something that's obviously been dominative in, in recent weeks, recent months. David De Gea expected to stay. Eric Ten Hag said prior to the cup final, though, that he couldn't guarantee him that he remains his number one. Obviously, there's been a lot of rumours. Diogo Costa in Portugal, David Raya, um, the Andalek goalkeeper, whose name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but Verbergren or something like that, I think it is, uh, who Samuel reported on a few weeks ago. In regards to this situation, who do you think is best for the goalkeeper that United that, that they need? Ray, obviously the ball-playing centre-back that a lot of people recognise in the Premier League, but by all accounts, Brentford are going to command a big fee like you know so many other Premier League clubs for their star assets. It's a difficult one. Um, I mean, from my point of view, I'd get rid of De Gea this summer and go buy someone like Raya as a ready-made replacement, but yeah. that's not going to happen. You know, This offer's on the table for De Gea um, on reduced terms and Ten Hag has already warned him that he won't have the same monopoly on the number one shirt that he's had, you know, this this past season for the past decade really at United. You know, he's not going to be as guaranteed to start games as, as he once was. For me, from my point of view, then if if he's not guaranteed to play, there's no point keeping him. That's my bottom line. You need a keeper who's fully trusted and backed by the manager from the off, and De Gea isn't right now. So I mentioned this on the early podcast. Sorry if I'm repeating myself, but yeah, for me, bottom line is I wouldn't keep De Gea. Um, so, but we've got to answer this from United's point of view. So they are keeping De Gea on reduced terms. And I think from that point of view, you should go for someone who's a who's, who's genuine competition, but maybe who's on the rise, someone who there is less expectancy on. Um, I mean, you look at even internally, I know Dean Henson's probably going to leave the club uh, this summer. There's talks over a permanent sale of him, but you've got Matej Kovar, who's just won the league with Sparta Prague. You know, that's someone who could come in and, and be the third choice. You've still got Tom Heaton there. There is an argument that, think about how often you actually see reserve goalkeepers used and, and how often you need a big slice of bad luck, really, for, for them to have a prolonged run in the team. So there's an argument, I still think, that United don't actually need another goalkeeper. You know, if they are, if, if Tenog sees enough in De Gea to stick with him for another year or two, then just stick with him because you've already made your mind up there. There's no point having this illusion of getting someone else in if you're still keeping De Gea around because you're not you're not solving the answer there. You're delaying it for another two, three years, aren't you, really? You're not doing anyone any good. So I think if he's keeping De Gea, you might as well keep him in goal. Otherwise, what is the point? What is the point? And I think from that point of view... You want to sign someone who's young, who's competitive, who can rival him for the, for the starting spot. But maybe you would go for, like you said, the guy at Anderlecht, whose name we're not going to try and pronounce and mispronounce. Or you go for someone like Matej Kovar. You give him a, a chance to be number two and see what can happen. Um, because I think United obviously do need someone else, particularly if Henderson's going, they need to get a fresh face in. It could come internally. But I think 
again with the priorities elsewhere you can't be spending such a massive fee you can't keep De Gea and spend a big fee on a goalkeeper for me that's contradictory you either get De Gea and buy someone who's elite or you keep him and you buy someone else who can rival him but isn't really going to be starting most weeks no, I think I can uh, fully agree with that. It's you know it, it makes sense, and like we've said, the striker's got to be the priority, and then other options are just going to be, you know, later in the day to see what they can do. But that concludes part two of this Manchester is Red podcast. Do rejoin us in part three, where we're going to have a look at our personal season highlights and uh, kind of reflect on what's been a pretty good season for United in general. Welcome back to part three of this Manchester is Red podcast. As I said at the end of the part two, we are going to look at our personal highlights of this season for the Reds. Uh, In total, Eric Ten Hag, 62 games at the helm. It all started in Thailand against Liverpool, that 4-0 win last July, and then it ended at Wembley last weekend. It was a a long season, a lot of competitions, a lot of games. Um, Rich, me and you covered a lot of it this season, certainly you out on the road. Personally, for you, everything, you know, taken into it, taken into equation. What what was your personal highlight and your fondest memory of Ten Hag's first season at the club? That's a, that's a difficult one, isn't it? I probably should have thought about this before the podcast because this has given so much time to actually uh, to actually go for it. I think from United's point of view, it's got to be from from what I was actually there and covered. I think that. This the win over City in January and the win over Barcelona the following month were just great Old Trafford moments. They were great Old Trafford nights and they were just brilliant. They were united at their best, you know. I know that they played as the underdog a bit and they but they had to. But they still toppled the team that's potentially gonna win the treble. They toppled the team that won La Liga a canter, to be honest. And they proved that, you know, there's been horrible moments this this season and, and Ten Hag's had a real difficult first year. But those were the signs that United fans will, will cling on to. They are, they are the little nuggets of hope going forward that this United team has really changed. And I know under past managers, there have been similar wins. Solskjaer, what, did he beat Guardiola three times in one season? No one was saying that he's the best manager in the world. But there was enough there. And I think the Barcelona game and the, United, and the City game at home were just... It was two of the best atmospheres I've ever heard at Old Trafford and real joyous occasions. The the sort of scenes between the players and the fans, the felt the fact that it did feel at that point like United could still be in a title race. Okay, maybe we never truly believed it, but you thought, why not? And beating Barcelona in the Europa League, why not dream of winning that as well? Because they'd beaten the best team left in the competition. And I think those are the moments for me that, that really stood out. I think all in all, from United fans' point of view, actually being able to win a trophy was brilliant after all these years of of finding miraculous new ways not to win a trophy for them to finally win one yes it might have only been the league cup but it's still a trophy and i think that's a fantastic achievement but for me yeah it's the city win at home and, and the barcelona win at home that stand out how about you i think for me the barcelona wins definitely got to be up there that that was a very memorable night you know the fact that they came from behind you know obviously after that early uh, Lewandowski penalty that was certainly up there, and then obviously the win itself against Newcastle in the League Cup final. What was it? Three days later, it was you know it was a brilliant four days for United. They beat Barcelona on the Thursday, and then beat Newcastle at Wembley on the Sunday. That was a you know a brilliant few days for the football club. But obviously, I think one of the one of the moments I remember most fondly was probably, and I don't know why, because it wasn't really a game that meant that much. It was probably Ganacho's last minute winner away at Fulham to sign off for the World Cup. 
that that felt like quite a poignant moment in the season. That one after you know what had happened with well, what later happened with Cristiano Ronaldo's interview with Piers Morgan coming out the same evening. But I think you know if you take it all into account, sixty-two games, it, it's got to be that win over Barcelona. The atmosphere, like you said, that that was just electric. It was one of the the great Old Trafford nights. And yeah, I think that certainly ranks up there. The City win at home also good. I think in terms of moments to forget, there's too many to reflect on in terms of bad results. <laughs> so we'll not bother going down that road today. But obviously, Rich, myself and you, you know, we're, we're not Manchester United supporters, but it's been a good season for the Reds. Don't give it away. <laughs> it's been a good season for our respective clubs as well. You being a Wrexham fan, getting promotion back into the Football League. Me being a Sheffield Wednesday fan promotion back into the championship. So it's been a pretty good year for us. And of course, your beloved Wrexham are going to take on a Manchester United eleven in the States during that pre-season tour next month. Just how big an occasion is this going to be for Wrexham Football Club? They're already back on the map as a result of their Hollywood owners. But this is just going to take it to the next level, isn't it? Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what the sort of crowd split is as well for that game. Because... Winsett's going to be a United Academy team primarily. Maybe the likes of Ahmad will play and, and some players who are sort of on the fringes. So maybe not just a complete sort of under-21s, but but others who don't always don't always get game time. Um, it'd be interesting to see the split in, in terms of the actual, like I said, the, the fans on the day and how much attention is on, on United and how much attention is, is on Wrexham, respectively, for what they've done and how far they've come in the past 12 months. I mean, it was last summer that the two teams met in a behind-closed-doors friendly at Carrington. And a year later, they're playing stateside and it'll be a sellout and it'll be raucous. And the first year of Wrexham's takeover, everyone sort of knew about it. But I think there was a lot of scepticism about whether it was real and what was actually going to happen. Didn't get promoted, lost in Wem- lost at Wembley in the FA Trophy final. But the last year, the wins, the FA Cup run, um, Ben Foster signing, the global news it made and the fact that Wrexham won the National League in record-breaking style, 111 points. They only didn't win two home games in all competitions last season. They are a winning machine. And I think it will be, you know, further sort of confirmation of how far this, this team is coming. I mean, the irony is that Wrexham announced their new kit sponsor this week, which is United Airlines. So next season, Wrexham's kits all just say United on the front. That is the logo. So every Wrexham kit just says United on it. So that will be interesting to see. Um, and yeah, it will just be fascinating again to see the appeal of it and I suppose as well sort of from a, a news point of view to see what, what celebrities sort of turn up to this one because you expect there'll be a lot when Wrexham take on LA Galaxy later in pre-season but it's Wrexham versus United it doesn't really matter who plays for United it's still seismic news whenever they play a match so it's just gonna be fascinating and I think from Wrexham's point of view it's just a, a further sort of in that sort of confirmation that they are one of the big boys now they are one of the biggest global brands in in football really they are turning into that and I'd still say from my own personal point of view that below the championship I do not think there's a better team in world football to play for right now than than Wrexham everything that's going on the feel-good factor and and the owners I think that this summer will will further confirm that as well and I think from Wrexham's recruitment if if a player's thinking about where he's going to play his footballers you know next season if you're not already sold on Wrexham anyway a free trip to the States to play against United, Chelsea and LA Galaxy. That's going to sweeten the deal, isn't it? That's the thing, isn't it? You know, obviously, just putting all the the Hollywood money to one side for a moment and everything that comes with Wrexham, obviously, historically, they are a big football club. But the fact that a League Two team, which they are, 
is heading stateside for pre-season is just unheard of. Normally, League Two teams, if they're lucky, they get somebody, I don't know, like Fulham or maybe Bristol City at home or something. But Wrexham are going to play Manchester United in America. It, it doesn't get much bigger. And do you think, just, you know, still on the Wrexham conversation, do you think there could be some wriggle room for potentially Wrexham to borrow one or two United youngsters this uh, this season? I think it's something that will certainly be discussed and particularly if a United youngster shines against them in a in the preseason friendly then there'll certainly be more demand for that to happen the only concern I'd say from that point of view is that Rexon's manager Phil Parkinson has, has made a point that he, he's never signed one player on loan in the two years at the club because he doesn't see any value in having temporary players certainly not in non-league he's every player other than Ben Foster has signed it like at least a three-year deal because Wrexham are trying to build for, for the long-term future and have those those foundations in place. So in terms of loaning a player, I think in League 2 there's more mitigation. You get a bigger bench, you get different squad um, registration rules. So I think you know someone like Charlie Savage, you know, Robbie's a Wrexham lad himself, you know, maybe there would be a, a sense of intrigue and, you know, sort of, a feel-good story there. Someone like Charlie Savage joined Wrexham on loan for for a season. I think it would suit all parties, to be honest. And you know, I think the only, like I said, the only sort of scepticism is Wrexham aren't there to try make feel-good stories. They don't want it to be sort of fairy tale stuff and just buy players for the sake of headlines. They want players who are committed and, and can give them the best chance of winning League Two next season. So there won't be any sentiment, and they won't just move for a player just for the sake of it. Yeah, definitely. I think Charlie Savage is one that I could see come into fruition to be fair he did quite well in his short term stint at Forest Green in the second half of uh, this season just gone but just to, to wrap this up moving back to United and the conversation about them obviously it's very early to cast predictions when the transfer window is not even open nobody knows how the squad's going to look but realistically Rich based on the year that United have had this season it's been a progressive 12 months admittedly there were one or two bumps along the way but overall it was a you know it was a season of progress what do you think next season will be considered a success for United? Have they, if they get that elusive strike they need, if they make a few more clever additions, say if the takeover does go through, have they got the ability to challenge City for the title? Will they be looking to break into that top two? Second, obviously, would be an improvement, even though it's not the you know the main objective for the long term. Or will they, you know, try and go deep into the Champions League for for next season what 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 do you think realistically if United have a good window and get what they they realistically need do you think they can achieve next season I think the best they can achieve is closer in the title race certainly finishing within more points of of Man City I, I don't I don't think there'll be proper title challenges I still think that primarily the big achievement next season will be finishing in the top four again because this has been a season of flux and teams in limbo and going through different transitions. You can have a new look Chelsea with a competent manager. You're going to have Liverpool who are making all the right strides and were really good in the in the run in last season that you know they look like they were getting back back close to where they belong. City are Man City are, Man City, you know they're a behemoth, they're a level Just above everyone else another level. right now. Arsenal are, are Arsenal. You know, they're still good. They're still good. We don't know what to expect still though. They might believe their own hype too much and drop off a cliff. They might finally prove that they have turned the corner and, and be good again. Then you've got the likes of teams like Brighton and Brentford, Villa, you know, these teams who've got real good forward momentum, who recruit really well, who have have every chance of shocking the, the Premier League and, and finishing high up. Newcastle, you know, they are the dark horses. They've got as much money as anyone this summer. And whenever you're looking at a play United could buy, 
why can't Newcastle go buy them as well? You know, they can offer more money right now, guaranteed. They can go out and get their business done early because they know their budgets. They, they've got Champions League appeal now as well. So I still think finishing in the top four is the real goal for United next season. I don't think they can start dreaming about being third, second, even first yet until they've sort of, they need to get to terms with, they've got to finish top four first. They can't get too complacent themselves. But I think the makeup of the United team, you've mentioned there the moments. We mentioned the City win, we mentioned the Barca win. You mentioned sort of Fulham away, these games where they just find a way to win. I do think United, in a weird way, probably have a better chance of winning the Champions League next season than the Premier League because they are better suited as a cup team. You know, they've got to the Europa League semi-final, the League Cup final and the FA Cup final under Ten Hag. They are more suited to being a cup team. So I generally think next season, I'm not saying United got to go win the Champions League, but I think they've got a better chance of winning the Champions League than the Premier League, as ridiculous as that might sound. No, I think there's certainly sentiment to it, to be fair. You know, you, you look at what United did in cup competitions and to be fair, obviously the Champions League's a, a different kettle of fish, but Eric Ten Hag proved this season he takes these competitions very, very seriously. I mean, I've I've done a piece this morning which mentioned the 3-1 win over Reading in the FA Cup back in January. You know, realistically, he should have rung the changes that night and he went full strength against a championship side that was near the bottom of the league and he just proves he takes no prisoners. He doesn't risk anything. And that was apparent, you know, right at the very start of the Europa League campaign when they were playing the likes of, you know, Sheriff Tiraspol. You know, he could have completely yeah. just rotated everything and he stuck with the likes of Rashford, Fernandez, Casemiro. But he didn't do that. So it's going to be very interesting to see. But I think, you know, Champions League, it's certainly, you know, something that United will want to advance into the latter stages of. There's no doubt about that. Whether they can win it or not, we shall see. But I think that just about wraps up this week's episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. A big thank you to Rich for joining me this Friday lunchtime. As always, it goes without saying, if you enjoyed this podcast and you would prefer to watch it as well as listen to us, we are now on YouTube as well. Just search Manchester is Red and you can subscribe to the channel on YouTube. We'll be back again next week to discuss and debate all the very latest United news as the transfer window officially opens for business on Wednesday. Have a great weekend, enjoy the sunshine, and we'll catch you again very, very soon.